Thank you, worship team, for leading us and worshiping our Lord this morning. Good morning, Calvary Church and guests this morning. We're here to uh, worship the Lord and we're to look at His Word today. We're back in our study of the Gospel of Luke, so you can turn to chapter 7 in your Bibles. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. But I was wondering if you've ever considered that Jesus' healing ministry was no ordinary healing ministry. I mean, that's because when you think about Jesus' ministry, it really wasn't a healing ministry. It was more of a preaching and teaching ministry. And then when you think about that, it was more than just teaching about the truth of God or the way to heaven. But Jesus Christ himself is the very revelation from God. He is the Son of God who has become man. He brought the final stages of God's revelation to, to mankind, and He's the hope and the weight of all of history, and He's finally come. Now, next week, we're going to be taking a break from the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be doing our Advent series for this year. And the Advent series will be focusing, of course, on Jesus' greatness as our Savior and the, and the Son of God become man and all His purposes for us. And we'll be studying the servant songs of Isaiah a wonderful study of these prophecies in the book of Isaiah that speak about our Savior, Jesus Christ. But then we think about all the other things that Jesus did. He accomplished, of course, our redemption on His cross and in the resurrection. And the ultimate ministry that He came to perform was really to glorify God as Father and also to save among humanity, to save you and me. And He reigns in heaven from on high right now over all things for the benefit of His glory and His church, and He's going to return. And when He returns, that will be the day that the ultimate healing ministry of Jesus will take place. Because on that day will be the resurrection from the dead, and our resurrection to glory with Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise You this morning as the Eternal Son, as our Savior, as the one who brings truth from God, who is God Himself, the one who heals all of our diseases, the one who speaks to us as a friend in Scripture, a friend of sinners, and that's exactly who we are, and we need a friend. And we thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your work on the cross, ultimately, that You would pay the price as we just got done singing, and redeem us from our sins, and to purify us as your people by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we ask this morning that you would guide us as we study the Scriptures. Amen. Well, again, Jesus' healing ministry was no ordinary healing ministry. And it was no ordinary healing ministry because as we read about the healings that Jesus performed in the Bible, these are truly miraculous healings and testify to the very fact that Jesus is who He said He is, and He is the Son of God. No one in the history of the world has brought healings like Jesus Christ. And in our passage today, as we move through the Gospel of Luke, we'll see that this healing ministry of Jesus in our passage today in chapter 7 is taken to a whole new level in the Gospel according to Luke. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke 7, verses 1 through 17, and be astounded at Jesus Christ your healer this morning. There are two episodes we'll be looking at this morning, you'll see. And Jesus' authority is expanding and he's starting to command through all of his actions and his words a greater faith in himself 
and he's commanding a greater praise. And that's why we're even here this morning. That's what we want for ourselves. We want to be able to praise him more and to have greater faith in him. So we're going to learn this morning to humble ourselves in our belief in our Lord in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our Lord God. Not to have a proud faith, but to have a humble faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so praise him for his compassion, for his power and his eternal salvation in our lives. So Luke presents two firsts really in Jesus' ministry as he tells the story to us about Jesus Christ that show that he's worthy of all of our faith and worthy of all of our praise. And the first story is in verses 1 to 10, where Jesus heals for the first time the Gospel of Luke from a distance, not even present when he performs a healing. And the second first in verses 11 through 17 is that Jesus raises someone from the dead. First time in the Gospel of Luke. And in this storyline, Luke is starting to tell us as his readers about the expansion of Jesus' ministry, his early ministry in Galilee. It all began back in chapter 4, verse 14, if you glance back there. That's when he launched his ministry in Nazareth of Galilee. His public ministry is now really in our passage today taking its second part. It becomes one of great popularity, his early Galilean ministry. And we read it's a time of great popularity for him. Um, we see so many actions of Jesus that demonstrate his compassion. And it's not just a compassion of one human being for another. This is the compassion that comes from the Messiah himself for people who are trapped in sin and the ravages of sin in their lives, and he is there to heal and help them. It's also a time in his ministry where we're going to see Jesus presses the most important questions upon our minds about who he really is. Christological questions, we would call them. Questions about who he is. Is he really the Christ and what does that mean? Questions about his work and what that would mean, his death on the cross and his resurrection. Well, as we begin this second part of Jesus' Galilean ministry here in chapter 7, let's take a look at this very first episode where Jesus heals from a distance. So here is story number one. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And so the outline of this 
episode is very simple. The centurion, we see his faith at the very beginning, and and he sends out this Jewish delegation in verses 1 to 5, but then he changes his mind in verses 6 through 8, and he sends out a delegation of his friends on what he wants to tell Jesus to not come now. And then finally, we have Jesus' teaching on the centurion's faith in verses 9 and 10. I want to point out to you something that we've been seeing in Luke all along, and some of your translations may begin after he had fulfilled all his sayings. And that's a more literal rendition of the Greek. And this word fulfilled is used repeatedly in Luke's gospel. It's like he fulfilled his words on the Sermon on the Plain that we just got done reading about and learning from. Because everything that Jesus is doing, he's fulfilling a sovereign plan. That's why Luke uses that word. He fulfilled it. He finished it. He brought it to completion. This plan of God that he has for his son. And so after this sermon, he returns to Capernaum, and that's the center of his operations for his Galilean ministry. And we're introduced to this particular centurion. He's a Gentile. He could come from one of a number of possible nationalities. We don't really know. Most likely, he's an officer in Herod's military, not a Roman one. And he sees over a hundred men, a lieutenant over a hundred men, And he has the servant who's dying. In Matthew's account of the story, it's basically he's paralyzed and hanging on by a thread. And the servant was particularly valuable, maybe even personally dear to this centurion. And so he heard that Jesus was near Capernaum or in Capernaum, not far from his village. And maybe this centurion heard about what Jesus did with the official's son just a few months earlier. In John chapter 4, we read the story about how he healed this official's son not very far away. And so maybe he heard about that and thought, maybe Jesus would come and heal my servants as well. And so he sends this delegation of Jewish leaders, most likely civic leaders here, not the religious leaders. They don't seem to get a good reputation so far in the Gospel of Luke. And he hopes that they're going to be able to convince Jesus to come and rescue his servant from death, even though he and his servant are Gentiles. Like as I mentioned, Matthew tells the same story, but he summarizes the story greatly. It's a much more shorter version in Matthew 8, and you can read it on your own if you'd like to. But this delegation of Jewish leaders implores Jesus on behalf of the centurion. They're indebted to this man because of his generosity. He had built them a synagogue. Centurions were paid fairly well, but these types of activities would, of course, engender them to the people and help them to keep order in the village. But more than this, he's a man that loves the Jewish people. He respects them and is impressed with their way of life. We're not told that he's a God-fearer or that he's a proselyte, but he could have been. But notice they say, this Jewish delegation say to Jesus and implore, this is the reason you should come and heal his servant. It's because he's worthy and he believes you can do it. Very interesting, isn't it? Because in the next verse, the centurion is going to deny his worthiness. Very important. Pay attention to that. We're going to come back to that. So, and so Jesus begins on his way to the centurion's house. And it ought to cause us to think ahead, actually, to another story that's very similar that Luke tells in Acts chapter 10. And if you are a Bible reader, you're already probably thinking about this. Because the story is very similar to Peter going to visit Cornelius. And... and uh, his house, and the Roman centurion involved there in Acts 10. It's a very similar story. And as Luke tells that story in Acts 10, it's all about showing that the gospel is intended for all the peoples of the world, for all the nations, 
for everyone around the world. And what we see even here is that it begins with Jesus. Jesus is doing that in this story. And of course, in the Acts 10, after Peter preaches, a household is saved, the Holy Spirit descends, people get baptized, and then Peter reports to Jerusalem everything that has happened, especially to the skeptical circumcision party, and emphasizes, he emphasizes again, that justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It cannot be earned. There is no religious duties that we can keep that will make God favor us. And they all praise God for what he has done. Well, back to our storyline, then in verses 6 to 8, we read, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, the second delegation, and says to him, Lord, don't even trouble yourself. He said, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't even presume to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. The centurion heard somehow that Jesus was responding favorably and he was on his way to his house and very nearby and, and he has a change of mind. And so he sends out a second delegation of some of his friends and he basically tells Jesus, no, please don't come. Why does he do that? It's because he's overwhelmed with the sense of his own unworthiness. That's why. Perhaps you remember the day that you were saved and you think back to your conversion, and you think about, that's exactly what it's like. To, not want, to want Jesus close, but not too close because you're a sinful person. It's just like Peter's experience back in chapter 5, where we read it, that great fishing example, and then all of a sudden, out of the nowhere, Peter says, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Because he's overwhelmed with Jesus' presence, and he fell down at his feet. The centurion's humility is a sign of his faith in Jesus, at least faith in his divine power to heal. Perhaps that's why he doesn't even go in the first place, and he doesn't want Jesus' reputation to be hurt by entering the Gentile's home. Well, the centurion knows the identity of Jesus, and he considers himself unworthy in the presence of his house. He calls him Lord here, probably just simply meaning rabbi or sir or good teacher, that type of a thing. But Luke, of course, intends much more for those who would read his gospel account and for us to see that Jesus is the Lord God. He's the eternal Son of God. And the centurion believes that Jesus can heal without even be, being present. He can just say the word and it's done. So the centurion here is assigning to Jesus the power of what's called the divine fiat, the divine command. Jesus can just simply say something, and it is. That's who he believes Jesus Christ is. And he believes Jesus' authority is from God, and so he can heal in this manner that he just described, and he compares his own military authority under Herod and how that works itself out to the Jesus' outworking of power over sicknesses. In other words, this centurion could just command soldiers, hey, you do this, you do that, and they do it. Well, Jesus could just go around and say, hey, sickness, disappear. Hey, demon, goodbye. And it happens. And they would obey. Well, then Jesus teaches about the centurion's faith in verses 9 and 10 and says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus marvels at the centurion and his faith. 
Because the centurion knows that Jesus does not need to be present to heal. See, most people at this time of Jesus' ministry, they don't get that. That's why they want to be near him all the time and have him come. But the centurion gets it. You see, the centurion knows the truth about his position before Jesus, and that should be a position of humility. See, a lot of people at this point in Jesus' ministry, this popular and everything, they don't get that. They still think they're in a position to be able to evaluate Jesus. Well, Jesus seizes this opportunity and teaches the multitudes about him and the kind of faith that he expects from people and the kind of faith that he will accept from people. They should learn from this, and none among Israel so far in his ministry have shown this kind of faith, he says. That's truly amazing. I mean, a Gentile even, and so early in the Messianic ministry of Jesus. Israel's failing in its response, but you see, this is what's going to be happening more and more as we go through the Gospel of Luke. And this whole thing, this ministry expansion foreshadows the universal mission of turning the Gentiles to the Lord, and they too would become part of the people of God. And as you read through the New Testament and understand church history, that's exactly what takes place. Now, Matthew, there's more to the story here. Luke summarizes here. He's saving something that Jesus said on this occasion because he's going to introduce it later in his gospel. But as we read through Matthew's account, right here, right after Jesus says to them, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith, this is what he says. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out. And they will come, these Gentiles, from the east and from the west and from the north and the south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. And Luke will bring this up later on in chapter 13, but Matthew records it right here because this is an amazing faith that this Gentile is showing in Jesus. And you must believe in Jesus to become a part of the people of God. And isn't it interesting that the story just sort of abruptly ends and nothing's even really said about the healing. It's just that these guys go back, and then they find out that the, by Jesus' authoritative word, the servants healed instantly. And so Jesus healed from a distance with even greater power than seen before in the Gospel of Luke, over distance, just by a word. This Gentile is highly regarded for possessing great faith in Jesus, who's the Lord of healing. And we wonder, did the centurion actually have saving faith? We don't know for sure. But we're supposed to put our faith in Jesus for salvation. You know, we're unworthy of Jesus, and we're unworthy of his salvation. All of humanity is unworthy of salvation. So we should not think of ourselves or other people as worthy of God's special attention. People are not entitled to divine favor. No one is. No one ever has been. So don't speak that way. You see, look at the story. The first delegation got it absolutely wrong. This centurion was not worthy to have Jesus under his roof. The centurion understood that. But these other people who only assessed Jesus by worldly standards did not get it. 
Do you see yourself this way, that somehow you deserve special attention from God or other people? Maybe it's a, something you need to pray and reflect on. Because sometimes we find things that are like this happening where we can think that as Christians, we think just because we, we've got faith in Jesus, we've sort of, you know, figured it all out. Or do we continually cry out to the Lord, Lord, have mercy? Sometimes believers want to put on a show that somehow they've got their life all together, even in the church to one another, that somehow that they're as good as the greatest Christians that have ever lived. Or do you still think about yourself as being teachable, that you have things to learn? In other words, do you have a humble faith in Jesus Christ or a proud faith in Jesus Christ? The centurion makes it really clear the kind of faith that Jesus accepts and expects from us. He's most worthy of our faith, a great faith and a humble faith. And we should have this kind of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ to trust like the centurion did and to grow in our faith, to grow in its magnitude and in this quality of humility. We should be humbling ourselves in our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and then learn to praise him for his compassion and his power and his eternal salvation that is so undeserved that he gives to us. And this is where we go next in the second story. Jesus raises the dead in verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still and said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So this story about Jesus is unique to Luke. In other words, you don't find it in the other Gospels in Matthew and Mark and John. It's the ultimate type of a healing miracle because he raises somebody from the dead. And it prepares us for what's coming up actually next when John the Baptist's disciples are trying to figure out, you know, exactly really who is this Jesus. And in Luke 7, if you glance ahead, Jesus answers and says to them, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling under, over me. Well, in this story, Jesus comes upon this funeral procession in verses 11 to 12, and he raises the dead man in verses 13 to 15, and then we see this response and the report that goes throughout all of the region. And so shortly after this healing of the centurion servant, he heads down to Nain. He's accompanied by his disciples in large crowds because he's very popular. And that's been noted more and more in chapters 5 through 7. So Nain is about uh, six miles southeast of Nazareth. It's 20 miles from this area in Capernaum. But the important part of where it is is that it's near Shunem. In fact, it's on the other side of the hill of the town of Shunem. Now, why is that important? Because Shunem is where Elisha raised the dead son of the Shunammite woman. You can read about that story in 2 Kings 4 if you'd like to read it. 
But you see, it's important because that's the heritage of the area. Everybody remembers that great history of this area when Elisha raised from the dead. It's well known. And in fact, that's exactly why Jesus went to that town. You see, sometimes we can think that Jesus just sort of walks around from town to town and things just sort of happen as they happen, but they don't. Jesus picks out purposefully every single place that he goes and every single person that he talks to. It's part of his divine purpose. And then just outside the city gate, Jesus and his followers come upon this large funeral procession. Family cemeteries were outside the city. Burials generally occurred on the same day of the death, and they were quickly prepared, and the bodies are carried out on a plank or an open coffin of some type. And we're informed that this funeral is especially sad because this young man was the only son of a widow. I mean, death is always sad, but this one's even more sad because now this woman has no man to care for her in this culture, no husband, no son. And she likely doesn't have an inheritance, and Jesus has compassion on this orphaned widow. So he raises the dead man. And so we read then in verse 13 right away, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, this is the first use of the narrative use of the word Lord in the Gospel of Luke. In other words, Luke is saying that's exactly who Jesus is. In case you might have missed it for six chapters, the Lord, Jesus, went and did this, and he sees this woman, and the Lord felt compassion for her and tells her to stop weeping, not just because he wants to comfort her, because of but because of what he's going to do in a minute. So he touches the coffin, and so the bearers halt because this is this unclean action in astonishment, and he just speaks to the dead man, and the dead man gets up and speaks. And then Jesus gives him back to his mother. This is supposed to remind us of another story. It's just like Elijah with the widow of Zarephath and Sidon and the son there whom he raised from the dead in 1 Kings chapter 17. You can read that on your own if you'd like to. But there's this parallel between verse 15 in our text and verse 23 in that text. And it says in 1 Kings 17, then Elijah stretched himself, you know this story, upon the child three times. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray to you, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house. And here's the phrase, and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you're a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. Now these references to Elisha and to Elijah are intentional by Jesus. They're intentional by Luke. In fact, we've already been introduced in Luke's gospel to the ministries of Elijah. And Elisha, if you flip back to Luke chapter 4, verses 24 to 27, you could glance at that. And when Jesus started speaking in, in his, started his ministry with his first message, you look back and, and Jesus compares himself to these two great prophets and how he continued their ministries and at the same time superseded their ministries. He, Jesus brought salvation truly to the Gentiles. 
just like Elisha and Elisha were doing. Elijah and Elisha. And because at that time, just like in Jesus' time, Israel would not listen. They're largely apostate. Same thing. That's the comparison back then. Well, now we have another comparison to these two prophets, and the parallel here is that Jesus is superior to them. Superior in authority, superior in power, superior in compassion, superior in ultimate salvation. You notice that Jesus just speaks and they rise from the dead. Elijah and Elisha had to plead with God to raise them from the dead. Jesus doesn't need to do that. So the man would, of course, die again much later, but this resurrection anticipates Jesus' own resurrection from the dead and ultimately our final resurrection in him to glory where there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, and no more pain. And this episode extends that hope to all of us who believe in him and become a part of the people of God that we have a glory awaiting us in heaven in all of eternity. So this response and and report then goes everywhere in verses 16 and 17. We read, fear seized them all. They glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole region of Judea and the surrounding country. Well, these two things happen a lot in the Bible, fear and praise. People are overwhelmed with what God's doing, yet they're praising Him for it. We've seen this pattern repeatedly, and it's going to continue as Jesus performs miracles, and we read about them in the Gospel of Luke. See, the people are saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, Eh, like Elijah, like Elisha. Well, the greatest prophet of all has arisen. He's Jesus Christ the Lord, the Lord Himself. Yahweh is among them. The people are saying God has visited His people, making a statement about God's great intervention in the lives of His people. But God has visited us. He's Jesus Christ the Lord, way more than they understood. Yahweh has visited us Himself. So these sayings that these people are saying should remind us immediately of Luke chapter 1 and Zechariah's prophecy about his own son, John the Baptist, and his relationship to Jesus, who is the Son of God. And we note then, back there at the very opening of the gospel account in Luke chapter 1, that John would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but Jesus would come in a superior power than Elijah in all ways. Now, it's unlikely that the people of Nain understand at this time where Jesus fits in all the history of redemption, but they sensed that something was changing. They didn't yet discern that Jesus was the eschatological prophet, the Messiah from heaven. And the result is that this report, though, goes throughout all of Judea, meaning all of Judah, all of Galilee. It even travels to surrounding areas. Word goes out, Jesus raised this man from the dead to the Gentile territories. It goes everywhere. And there's more popularity now that's even going to come upon Jesus because of these types of things he does. So he raised from the dead. It's his most powerful display so far and the most powerful display of his connection or who he really is. So we're to marvel at his identity. This is the Lord God among us. To marvel at his compassion on people. And to marvel at his power, he can just speak things and they happen. And to apply that to our salvation. God gives us our salvation. He speaks and it comes to be 
as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. It's not something we earn. God is full of mercy toward us. None of us deserve salvation. None of us deserve any favor from the Lord. But yet, because of His great compassion, He extends His favor to us. And of course, we will be included in the resurrection on the final day when the dead are raised to glory. So our hope is in Jesus, who's the Holy Lord, the one who heals, the one who raises from the dead. And this new level of Jesus healing in our story and Jesus expanding authority is given to us by Luke so that we can consider how we can offer greater expressions of faith and humility and praise to our Lord. Let's think about that this week. To meditate on Luke chapter 7, the scripture, and ask yourself, how might I have greater faith? How might I offer more praise to the Lord? Jesus' healing ministry was no ordinary healing ministry of a traveling miracle worker. There's plenty of those around. But he's the Lord himself who has come. And he has brought full salvation and a salvation that goes beyond this life. For example, we read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. We should humble ourselves in our faith in the Lord. We're not entitled to favor. God has given us salvation. And our salvation and our faith needs to be expressed in humility before the Lord and before one another and before the world. And then we can also praise Him for His compassion and His power and His eternal salvation. And again, it's so subtle but yet not so subtle as we go through the Gospel of Luke that on Luke's mind is constantly this universal mission of the Messiah to save people all around the world. The people of God would now be defined as those who believe in Jesus as the Lord. And we've already noted this parallel with this storyline and the storyline with Peter and the centurion and its anticipation for that. But even further, as you read through Luke's account in the book of Acts, you'll get to James in Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem, and as head of the Jerusalem church, he relates the significance and the application of all these things that have taken place and have taken place even with Peter's experience with Cornelius, and how it all applies to the Apostle Paul's work in foreign lands among the Gentiles. And in Acts 15, 14, James speaks, and he says, Peter has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, as it is written, and he quotes Amos chapter 9, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old." Luke is emphasizing that the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel is for all the peoples of the earth. We are the people of God, and we are continuing this mission in finding and forming the people of God from all over the world. We should see this morning also 
that both of these stories, the rescuing a centurion slave from the brink of death and the raising of the only son of that widow from death, they're both really resurrection stories in a sense because one is resurrection from the brink of death and one is just after death. And we're to see and be astounded at Jesus that when the Lord of life meets death, life wins, and it's all on our behalf. I want to close with two quotations from our Lord Jesus, one in John 6, 37, and one in John eleven twenty five. 25. You know them well. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe you. We believe that you're the resurrection and the life. We believe you for because in everything that you say. We believe your scriptures as they speak and teach about you. And we praise you for raising this centurion's servant from death and or rescuing him from death and raising this widow's son from death and how it testifies that you are the one who saves us from our sins and will give us eternal life forever in your presence and our resurrection body will be like yours in glory. And we look forward to that day. We pray this morning too, Lord Jesus, that you would give us a humble faith like the centurion expressed himself, that we would truly know our position before you and that we would enjoy that before you as well, because we know that you are full of compassion toward us in our infirmities, that you are powerful on our behalf, and that you have granted us salvation based upon your death and resurrection. And so we ask that you would accomplish this in our lives this week, make us a more faith-filled and faithful people, and make us a more praising people. And we pray these things for your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. Let's stand together as we respond in song this morning.
Well, uh, go over a couple of announcements quickly. Um, thank you again for coming and worshiping with us this morning. Um, if you came yesterday to help with the cleanup day, thank you so much for your service, um, and thank you so much for praying for that if you did that, did that as well. I know I walked in this morning, and there was a big pile of music in front of my office. They're like, we found this stuff. Here you go. So thanks for cleaning up. Um, just to remind you to take a look at the week at a glance in the worship folder. Uh, many of the regularly scheduled programs are taken off. Uh, due to the holiday week, so just make sure you're aware of which things are meeting and which aren't. Um, I want to remind you about our Thanksgiving Eve service, which is this week, Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m., um, so please come. We'll have some testimonies. We'll have some songs of Thanksgiving, and it's just great to worship the Lord together with that special um, thing in mind. And then finally, if you need prayer this morning, if there's something you heard during the service today, um, you want to make a confession, you want to make a commitment, or if you just need prayer for something in general, a few of us will hang out up here on the platform and we'll be here for you. Uh, just come see us right after the service. be happy to pray for you.